0: Rebels, and Romantics is going on the road, so sit back and enjoy while we visit some of our favorite places to shake up history together. With some exciting speaking opportunities coming up in Washington, D.C. and in New York City, as well as on the high seas, I'm off on a research road trip. This time I thought I'd take all you wonderful listeners along with me. So today I'll be telling you about the history places I'm planning to visit, as well as what I especially love and why. Then next week, I'll be celebrating my time in London with a special repeat episode of one of my favorite and yours the discovery of Anne Boleyn's Falcon and its journey from the celebration of Anne Boleyn in all of her glory, to its disappearance after her fall, then to its stunning discovery and return to Hampton Court in glory once more. Then I'll be broadcasting from London in real time to share all the royals, rebels, and romantics I'm discovering along the way. So let's go on the road to explore some history. First, the Tower of London. As a place where history comes alive in all its glory, and sometimes its gore, the Tower of London is one of my absolute favorite places. It's one of the most visited places in the world, but there are still some surprises waiting for you. The most recent time, many of us have seen the crown jewels on display was at the funeral of Her Majesty the Queen. The imperial state crown, along with the orb and scepter, was placed on the Queen's coffin for her procession and funeral ceremonies, then removed and placed on the altar in a symbolic return to the monarchy itself. The crown jewels are some of the most powerful symbols of the monarchy and represent the magnificence that defines royalty. They're kept under armed guard, and despite that delightful episode of Sherlock from 2012, they cannot be so easily accessed or worn. They are closely guarded, but can be seen in the jewel house. The crown jewels are used regularly for important national ceremonies. We will certainly see them in the upcoming coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. And check out those ravens. It's said that the royal astronomer of Charles II, named John Flamsteed, complained about the ravens interfering with his work at the observatory in the White Tower, and that he asked that those ravens be removed from the tower. The king considered the request, but was warned that if the ravens left the tower— the tower would crumble and the kingdom itself would fall. So the ravens continue their protected status as tower watchbirds. The ravens roam freely during the day and have been known to steal all kinds of things from unsuspecting visitors, from a bit of lunch to a shiny object or bobble. They are intelligent birds with distinct personalities, but they are certainly not tame pets. They respond to the raven master who takes excellent care of the eight Ravens currently in residence, Jubilee, Harris, Grip, Aaron, Poppy, Georgie, Edgar, and Brownwin. No trip to the tower is complete without a visit to the White Tower, the most famous castle keep in the world, and the oldest building in the tower complex. It was built by William the Conqueror, in the 11th century, and intended to prove to his subjects and to all the world that his reign was secure, and it would be foolish to even try to unseat him. You approach the building via the wooden stairs, designed to be easily pushed away or burned in case of invasion. You'll pass the spot where two small skeletons were discovered, the potential remains of the princes in the tower. Then carry on upward to see the breathtaking royal armor of Henry VIII, Charles I, James II, and more. Have you ever wondered how big Henry VIII really was? You get a really good sense of that from his armor, which, after all, had to fit very well. The White Tower also holds the beautiful chapel of St. John the Evangelist, It's a quiet spot from times gone by and is a haven for visitors today. The Tower was a place of terror and death. The exact site of the infamous scaffold where Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard, Lady Jane Grey, and Margaret Pole, among others, met their end is unknown. But there is a monument to those victims. Several of them, victims of the executioner's axe, or in the case of Anne Boleyn, sword, were then buried in the chapel of St. Peter Ad Vincula. The current building of the chapel dates from 1520, although there was a parish church in the tower from centuries before. It's a working church, and services are held throughout the week, which you can attend. The tower was much more than a prison and execution site. If you go to the Medieval Palace, you can walk through the worlds of Henry III and Edward I. They expanded the tower in the 13th century and contributed to the idea and look of the complex that we see today when we visit. The medieval t- palace comprises St. Thomas's Tower, the Wakefield Tower, and the Lanthorn Tower. And it recreates some of the rooms that were used at the time. You can get a sense of how the royals lived with their family and their children and their servants, the elegance that was also part of life at the Tower of London. So all this and more, and I'll tell you one of my favorite things to visit is the greatest graffiti in the world. Carved, not spray painted. It's fabulous. So be sure and see that as well when you visit the tower. Next, Westminster Abbey. Let's take a look at Westminster, which is a place of weddings and christenings and coronations and funerals for the royal family. It offers a view into a thousand years of history and includes celebrations not only of royals, but also of some poets, some heroes, and some villains. We might say royals, rebels, and romantics. Here are some of the places and people you can see at Westminster Abbey. In the nave, you'll see the coronation chair, which has been used for royal coronations for more than 700 years. It was made for King Edward I and designed specifically to enclose the Stone of Scone which was encased within the chair for hundreds of years. Recently, ish, it was stolen by the Scottish Nationals on Christmas Day in 1950. Then it was located in 1951 and replaced in the chair in 1952. More recently, in 1996, it was removed from the chair by representatives of historic Scotland and returned to its home. It's now in Edinburgh Castle. Now, the coronation chair itself is nearly seven feet tall. It was possibly used for coronations as early as 1308, and definitely used, at least from the time of Henry IV's coronation in 1399. For the joint coronation of William and Mary, the only couple in English-British royal history to actually rule as equals, two people ruling together, they had to create a second coronation chair so they could both be seated in a coronation chair. And that second recreation is seen in the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Galleries. They're on the upper level of the Abbey, opened fairly recently. Now, continuing the royal theme in Westminster Abbey, not only coronations, but also many burials have taken place in the Abbey. So Edward the Confessor, who founded the Abbey, is buried there. There's a spectacular shrine in the chapel that bears his name. And within that chapel are also the tombs of Eleanor of Castile, Edward III, Philippa of Hainault, Richard II, and Anne of Bohemia. Then there's another grouping of royals that are buried in the famous chapel. It's very lavish, elaborate, just breathtaking Designed and commissioned, not designed, but commissioned by Henry VII. It's dedicated to the Virgin Mary, called the Lady Chapel or the Henry VII Chapel. And it's considered to be a great masterpiece of English medieval architecture and sort of one of the last masterpieces of that type of architecture. It has this fan vaulted ceiling that, as you look up, will absolutely take your breath away. So Henry VII commissioned the chapel and then he selected Pietro Torrigiano to create the bronze bronze effigies, one for himself, one for his queen Elizabeth of York, and one for his much loved and revered mother Margaret Beaufort, who outlived her children and was the final one of that group to be buried there. Now also In the chapel of Henry VII are the tombs of Elizabeth I, along with her half-sister, Mary I. The monument is to Elizabeth, but she and her half-sister are buried together, and also a monument to Mary, Queen of Scots, James VI, who became James I of England, brought his mother's remains back and buried them with an elaborate monument there in Westminster Abbey. And then others are buried in the South Isle. There's no more room for monuments. So there's a vault that includes the graves of Charles II, William and Mary, and Queen Anne. Edward VI, that beloved and only legitimate living son of Henry VIII, is buried in front of the altar there in the Henry VII Chapel. His grave is marked just with a small plaque. And George II and Queen Caroline are buried in a vault under the center aisle of the Lady Chapel. And they're the last royals to have been buried at Westminster Abbey. So it's really a history of those early... Medieval, medieval, early modern, and and beyond, royals who are buried there, but royals are not the only ones who are buried or commemorated in the abbey. So prominently placed as you enter the abbey is the grave of the unknown warrior, which is a British soldier who was a British soldier. His remains were brought back from France on Armistice Day on the eleventh of November, nineteen twenty, and there's a marble slab, a black marble slab that marks this grave and has the inscription, Beneath this stone rests the body of a British warrior, unknown by name or rank, brought from France to lie among the most illustrious of the land, and buried here on Armistice Day, 11 November 1920, in the presence of His Majesty King George V, His Ministers of State, the chiefs of his forces, and a vast concourse of the nation, thus are commemorated the many multitudes who, during the Great War of 1914 to 1918, gave the most that man can give, life itself, for God, for king and country, for loved ones, home and empire. For the sacred cause of justice and the freedom of the world. They buried him among the kings because he had done good toward God and toward his house. So it is a wonderful, beautiful, fitting commemoration of all those who gave their lives. There are also memorials that will thrill the heart of literature lovers in Poet's Corner, where more than a hundred authors and poets are either buried or have memorials there. So the first poet poet, to be buried or author to be buried in Westminster Abbey was Geoffrey Chaucer. But he was buried not because he was an author, but because he was an important member of the King's Council. Still, He was best known for his literary works, most specifically the Canterbury Tales. And so that's why he may have inspired someone like Edmund Spencer... Um, who died toward the end of the 16th century, he wanted, Edmund Spencer wanted to be buried near Chaucer, and it's certainly because he wants that literary association. So other literary figures are also either found there or commemorated there. So William Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, the Bronte sisters, Jane Austen, Rudyard Kipling, Thomas Hardy, C.S. Lewis, Ted Hughes, Philip Larkin, all these people are commemorated there. So if you're a literature lover, Poets Corner is a place to definitely visit. The Queen's Diamond Jubilee Galleries make use of a medieval space to share some of the treasures from the Abbey. And that's only been available for the last few years. So you can see there the Liddington Missal, which is a beautifully decorated medieval. Latin manuscript. You can see the Westminster Table, which is the oldest surviving altarpiece. You can see a 14th century guide to coronations and burials that is actually still. You can see elements of those ceremonies that are still in use today. It's really the foundation of the ceremonies still today. You can see a very disturbingly lifelike effigy of the head of Henry VII and some of the other monarchs. Those effigies um, were quite lifelike and a little startling to see. And for the first time on display, the marriage license of the current Prince and Princess of Wales, William of Catherine. So Westminster Abbey, as a ceremonial spot. It continues to be an active church. You can attend services there, which are wonderful, even song, choral, um, concerts, all kinds of things. Definitely go to Westminster Abbey. Now, a short distance from London, you have to hop on a train, but you don't have to go too far, is one of my very, very favorite places in the world, and that's Hampton Court Palace. It's an amazing opportunity to walk in Tudor England, but you can also have a Baroque experience as well. So it's just amazing. So you can see where Henry VIII ate and and sat and walked and was, and you can find evidence from many of his wives as he took the palace from Woolsey and then continued to renovate it over his reign and over his marital Career. So, some exciting things are the entwined letters of the H and A. Some of those were replaced, but some of them were not. So, you can see when he was with Anne Boleyn. You can see some evidence of when he had moved on to Jane Seymour. It's really interesting to sort of read the history literally in the building. Um, If you look up in the Great Hall, which is just amazing, look up and you can see this hammer beam ceiling, which um, Henry was sort of paying homage to his medieval ancestors and the way they celebrated themselves and their magnificence with, with this magnificent ceiling. And if you look carefully, you can spot little little statues in the eaves. They are eavesdroppers looking down and listening in to your conversation. Um, the Great Hall, of course, was used during Tudor and also Stuart Time's for dancing and for feasts and for entertainment. And in fact, we know that Shakespeare's play Midsummer Night's Dream was performed for the court of James I at Hampton Court in the Great Hall. Now you can see that the walls are hung with the tapestries, the Abraham tapestries, which Henry VIII may have specifically commissioned for himself. Certainly, he's the one who purchased them and brought them into the then-English royal family and royal collection. And when Charles I was executed and Oliver Cromwell had all of the trappings of royalty, all of the royal collection valued and appraised, it was the tapestries, who ter- which turned out to be the most valuable item in the Royal Collection. And so it's really amazing that we can see these in Hampton Court. And in the Great Hall, there is something new, which, and I'm, I'm literally counting down the days till I can get my eyes on this. It's that Falcon Badge of Anne Boleyn. It was discovered by Antiques at expert Paul Simmons, And despite its being covered in soot and grime, he recognized it was something very, very important. And now it's been determined to be so similar in size and style to the other falcon badges of Anne Boleyn, that curators believe it was very likely part of the palace's Tudor decor. And it's currently on view in the Great Hall, which is really exciting. So if you imagine that great hall filled with people who are ready to eat, you know, they need some food. And that's where the Henry VIII kitchens come in. In Henry VIII's time, he expanded the kitchens at Hampton Court in particular. It was one of his favorite places. And more than 800 (laughs) meals were produced every single day when Court was there. Those kitchens or big portions of those kitchens survive and these were the largest of of the kitchens in any of Henry's palaces, so it's really exciting to see a glimpse of those and get a sense of those. And in the time, there were fires blazing, and there were roasting pits, and um everything was just so hot. And in fact, there had to be rules passed that the scullions had to wear clothes to stop going around naked because they just shed everything to try and beat the heat, Um it occurs to me that the fear of being burned or splashed on might make you want to wear a lot of clothing. But apparently, um, the place was described as a, quote, veritable hell by a visitor, and it was just so hot. And those kitchens that Henry VIII expanded and, and had built were actually used for, you know, actively for 200 years. So they were there a long time. Now, We shift over to William and Mary. They spent a lot of time at Hampton Court, and so they wanted to really renovate. Their idea was to replace all those, quote, old Tudor buildings with the latest and the greatest modern buildings. And I am just so grateful they ran out of money. And there were some tragedies also, but they slow down and stop before getting rid of all the Tudor stuff but there are some real glories you can explore William and Mary's and then Queen Anne's rooms so you go up the grand staircase and you find the apartments the state apartments of William who was Mary's husband and there's propaganda right there on the wall because there's um the art is celebrating a victory over the 12 Caesars and of course those 12 Caesars represent the Catholics that very Protestant William was able to overcome as he took the throne. And then you can go through a series of chambers, the guard chamber, the presence chamber, the eating room, and into the privy chamber, and you get close to the great bedchamber, But the king didn't actually sleep in the great bedchamber. That's where he was dressed in public, where um, very well-placed courtiers or perhaps a foreign visitor could actually come and see the levee, where the king was ceremonial dressed. He actually slept in his little bedroom where only the most trusted servants were um, allowed and involved. Now, if you've seen Bridgerton on Netflix, then you have seen The Fountain Court, because a lot of Bridgerton was filmed there. And that was part of Sir Christopher Wren's grand plan for the model, remodel for William and Mary. And it was the location of the state apartments and the lower orangery. And a couple of sad things happened during the construction of this, um, In 1689, they were rushing to complete the work as quickly as possible, and two workers were killed in December. They were trying to get some stuff done for Christmas, and two workers were killed because things were going so quickly. So the pace of construction slowed down to be safer, and then just five years later, Queen Mary died of smallpox, and William was ruling alone. He's said to have been devastated by her death. And he stopped the reconstruction at Hampton Court, and it was about five years before he started it again and then ran out of money and time. So we still have these glorious Tudor buildings as well as the later buildings to explore. And it's just a short train ride from London. It's easy to get to. I'll tell you all about it the day we go there. Now, another train ride away is a magical place, the glorious Heaver Castle, which is the childhood home of Anne Boleyn and a later home of Anne of Cleves. So if you're particularly fond of those wives of Henry VIII named and then Hever Castle is a place for you. So I want to tell you just a little bit about the history of the castle itself. It was built in the 13th century. The hall was the most important element of the house, and then permission was given to strengthen the house, and various owners took over. In the 15th century, it was enlarged, and some wings were added, a west wing and an east wing, And in the 16th century, it began to take on the look that we know um, Thomas Boleyn, as the owner, built a ceiling over the Great Hall to create this entrance hall, and then towers were added and stairways added throughout the 16th century. And we know that one of the owners, Charles Waldegrave, um, in the late 16th century installed a tower... And that was where he could hear Mass. Now, Mass, of course, was against the law by this point. So it was a very private area for him. And then later, his um, descendant, Henry Wildgrave, was trying to save some money on taxes because windows were taxed. And so he bricked up all the windows along the north wall of the Long Gallery, specifically to save on taxes. Excuse me, in the 18th and 19th century, it continued to be renovated and the size increased. And not only the buildings, but the amount of land. And so 1,300 acres of new land were acquired and brought into Heaver um, in the late 18th century. Now, we know that just after the turn of the century, just the beginning of the 20th century, William Waldorf Astor purchased Heaver, and he was fascinated by history and started a large-scale renovation project. And the renovation and restoration continues until today. Over the years, Heaver has seen 37 owners from 13 different families, and that's what brings us To the buildings that we have now, and you can visit them. There's an exhibition right now through the 9th of November called Becoming Anne, which celebrates 1522 to 2022, 500 years since Anne Boleyn's return from France to the English court. It talks about her childhood and her upbringing, and a little bit about her participation in the Chateau Vert pageant, where she performed alongside her sister Mary alongside the Queen's sister, Mary, who was the Dowager Queen of France by this time, and Henry VIII himself. This is not when their relationship started, but we do have all these people in the same room together. It was sort of an amazing moment. Definitely, you want to see the grounds at Hever. Um, The gardens are just extraordinary. There's a 38-acre lake you can look out on. Fountains, there's a the Pompeian wall, an Italian garden. It just takes you back to another time and place, and it is absolutely breathtaking. So, plan lots of time for the castle and lots of time to wander around the gardens. Definitely worth the trip. Now, of course, it's not all fun and games for me on this trip. I'm doing a lot of research, which is also really incredibly fun and magical for me because I get to go to two extraordinary places the British Library and the National Archives. And I want to tell you a little bit about them as well so the St Pancras location of the British Library is the main place to go and it's close to King's Cross Um, tube station and that, if you are a Harry Potter fan, you definitely want to go to King's Cross, where you will spot platform nine and three quarters, you can see if you can get into the magical world. There's a great Harry Potter store. And actually, King's Cross Station has just undergone a renovation. It's fabulous. So you walk from there to the library, it's open to the public, there are lots of events held there on-site, also online if you're not there. Um, There are exhibitions. There is a treasures gallery which showcases some of the different treasures from the collection. So here are just a few things that have been there recently. A letter signed by Henry VIII, something from the Bronte sisters, um, notes of genetic pioneers like Marilyn Monk and Kathleen Holding, and then Other things you can see there, Jane Austen's desk, there are sacred texts and maps from all over the world, there's a copy of Shakespeare's first folio on display, there are just all kinds of things to see. Often there are special exhibitions, and that's where I was earlier this year to see the marvelous exhibition of Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots, Also there at that same time was an exhibition about the Beatles. So you can really see the whole world. And if you want to dig deeper and do your own research, you just have to go on the website and you can apply for a reader's pass. So website is bl.uk. Of course, I'll have all these websites from these places in the show notes. So that's right in London. The archives are a little further afield. You can certainly get to them. Definitely worth a visit. I went, uh, there's, district, there's underground lines, there's overground lines, you can go to Kew Gardens, and just it's a very nice walk from there. If you are brave enough to drive, which I admit I am not, there is also a car park there. So get yourself to the National Archives at Kew. They are absolutely beautiful. It's, It's a very nice little walk if you're going from the station. And also as you Enter the grounds of the archives. You'll be greeted by these swans swimming. It's just, it's just wonderful. Now the exhibitions there are available and free and on except between exhibitions when they are taking one down and installing the next. And unfortunately, I have to admit, my trip will be in one of those installation moments. So I won't get to see, I won't be there quite long enough to see the treason exhibition. I may have to go back, which is opening appropriately enough on the 5th of November, which makes it easy to remember, remember. Um, there are a lot of online events held on the archives, so check out their website and if you're if you're there there are a lot of family activities for kids of various ages and their families and so it's a it's a great very friendly and welcoming place and with research there you can see what's going on what what research the staff and the students are doing um, you can also contact the research team you can attend seminars that are put on by the archives or conferences highlighting some of the research that's going on on. And you can conduct, learn more about conducting your own research. Again, go on the website and you can apply for a reader's pass. So, after all that, and I know I've been talking 100 miles an hour because I wanted to share some of the things I'm so excited about. You can see why I'm very happy to paraphrase Dr. Johnson that when someone is tired of London, they are tired of life for quote, there is in London all that life can afford. And that's how I feel. So now that you know why I'm going and some of the places I'm going, I would love to hear from you. Where have you always wanted to visit in London or, or in the surrounding area or England? Where? What's on your bucket list. What's in store for you? Or is there something you'd like me to find out or see if I can grab a picture of or something? I would love to hear from you your own thoughts about this wonderful place, England, London, where so much history happened. So, I can't wait to take you on this journey with me to meet Royals, Rebels, and Romantics in their own stomping ground. Thank you for joining us on our road trip to London and beyond. I so appreciate your listening, you're leaving a rating, maybe subscribing, and I want to send a heartfelt thank you to all of my wonderful, generous patrons who support the work of the podcast. Please keep telling me what you think, and let's keep shaking up history together.